With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Big Blue Insider is on. News Radio 630 WLAP and the iHeartRadio app. To interact with the show, call us at 859-280-2287. That's 859-280-CATS. Or you can tweet us at BigBlueInsider1. Now, here's Dick Gabriel. Welcome back to the Big Blue Insider, our number two of our program in English. Uh, Aaron Gershon and Billy Rutledge along as well. And as we mentioned, this was the day officially that student-athletes could start making their way back, some student-athletes, back to campuses across the SEC. Coaches encouraged to still meet with players virtually, but there are staff members there to make sure everybody is safe and socially distanced when they can, et cetera. Could media people be too far behind? Well, I would say probably. But uh, whatever happens when we are allowed to get back fully into the swing of thing, Mr. John Hale will uh, be there. He is, of course, the U.K. beat writer for the Courier-Journal, joins us on our celebrity hotline. John, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Just uh, You're just off a week off, I know. Uh, nothing much has changed except for the fact that players are returning now. Uh, and, you know, the pro leagues are, are being active, John, as you know, with plans in place. You know, the NFL plan, I have no idea how they're going to make that work. The, uh, the NBA has been pretty proactive. Are you any more optimistic now than you are? I guess we talked to you about uh, a week into this pandemic. Are you any more optimistic now than you were then? I am, actually. I, it, it feels like and maybe this is just, you know, all these pro leagues coming to some sort of group consistency, and we'll see if it, you know, bears out in any sort of scientific validity, but it does feel like there's all this momentum towards things reopening right now in various ways, and we've seen, you know, I'm not a big fan of European soccer and the German leagues back and the English leagues starting back in another week, and, you know, here locally in, in the U.S., NASCAR's back, and uh, Korea, there's baseball. Japan's yep. reopening their baseball league. So, so it seems like there are there have been some leagues that have proven ways to do it without fans in the stands. And so, uh, assuming that these, the, you know, the getting football players back on campus and having them work out, and uh, I know there was a report from Sports Illustrated today that the NCAA is about to approve their you know six week plan for a preseason camp. It feels like it's going to start on time. Uh, in some form. I am not confident in any way that it's going to end on time or there's not going to be some sort of interruption if there's a second wave or that we're going to have fans in the stands or or whatever else, you know, all the other considerations still out there. But it does seem like maybe the best, the option for football is to start September 5th and then try and get it in before it, it gets worse again. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that, but everybody has to be smart, and I think obviously yep. the schools will be as smart as they can. In fact, Mitch Barnhart released a statement today uh, basically underscoring what, what UK has been saying all along about being smart, being safe, and keeping the student-athletes' safety 
first and foremost. Uh, so assuming they do, all we can do is speculate. Uh, it's not as much fun to speculate on, on when as to what's going to happen. And uh, since we chatted last, we've had a lot of fun, Aaron and Billy and I, sort of sifting through all the preseason prognostications. And, and as you well know, uh, the Internet is a bottomless pit, and we're all trying to fill it. So you've got people who are uh, posting their preseason rankings and ratings and all this. And basically the consensus, it seems, has been among the more of the mainstream. I don't count the SEC network because they're better informed than I think a lot of the other uh, outlets that are posting on social media when you look at the national outlets. But for the most part, Six wins for Kentucky seems to be the consensus. And, you know, I know, John, you know as much about that football team as anybody who covers it. Uh, and, and so I would think that, of course, with your depth of knowledge, you would think that that's being pretty conservative. But are you surprised, John, this is like the fourth year in a row that Kentucky has shown impressive improvement under Mark Stoops, who's now getting a lot of attention as a head coach. But are you surprised that the over and under stays at, five and a half or six games? I'm not. Uh, I mean, I I personally think they're in the conversation. They should be talking this year in terms of internal goals about this being a repeat of two years ago and yeah. then shooting for double-digit wins and all those things. But when you look at the narrative and, and you know how these preseason rankings are done, most people who are doing them don't, frankly don't have the time or the energy or you know the will to go through all – hundred teams or whatever, or even all the power five teams and like evaluate their rosters top to bottom. And it's so impossible to do that. If you're not covering them on a daily basis that you'll hit Kentucky and you say, okay, they were really good two years ago. They lost everybody. We thought they were going to take a back last a step back last year. They, you know, maybe took a little one back, but they had this you know, program changing player and Lynn Bowden who right. kind of willed them to an eight win team. Well, they lost Lynn Bowden and he was their entire offense. They don't have Benny Snell anymore. And so obviously they're going to take another step back. But when you look closer and you see that they basically have their entire defense back, they have a bunch of young talent there. They're getting some guys back off long-term injuries. Uh, there's offensive skill position talent to get excited about. Uh, there's a lot of reason to think that this is their deepest and most talented roster yeah. in a long, long time, even more so than two years ago. The big question remains quarterback, though, and, and that's why I give some of these people slack, but a little bit of slack, because until we see what Terry Wilson looks like when he comes back from injury, until we find out if Joey Gatewood's eligible and if he's eligible, if he can throw the ball, until we find out if Sawyer Smith is healthy and, and the guy we saw against Florida versus the guy we saw after he got banged up, mm -hmm. that quarterback is such a big question for Kentucky right now, it's hard to say one way or the other. I tend to think that among that group of three, somebody is going to be an SEC-level quarterback for them and I'm confident enough in everything else they have to think this could, this should be an eight-win team at, at minimum competing for nine or ten wins. Yeah, John, and add continuity of the coaching staff to that list as yep. well. I just can't imagine trying to implement my entirely new system to a group of guys in year one as a head coach. Now, do you think that while the quality of play across the board may be down, we could still see teams like Kentucky, the, the Nick Sabans, the guys that have been established – head coaching and coaching staff to kind of maybe even pull away, maybe in the first few weeks? Yeah, I think that the, there's a real chance of that, and especially if your roster has a lot of returning players, which Kentucky's does. I mean, they, 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 I mean, think a year ago they redshirted their entire freshman class, and they could probably do that again this year if they wanted to. I think they're going to leave the door open to a few of those guys to you know force their way into the field because they're such highly talented recruits. But 
they have so many of their key guys in the two deep who have played uh, the entire season, two entire seasons, three entire seasons at some point. This is not a situation where they're going to be showing up today and over the next two weeks as the rest of the team arrives and not know what's going on. I mean, the, the continuity in, in the coordinators is a big deal. They're running the same scheme. They have the same coaches there. They have obviously a, a few new position coaches, but even in that situation, one of their new position coaches, Anwar Stewart, was on the staff two years ago as a student assistant. Another one, Frank Lafano, has been on the staff since 2013 in a support role. So these are not wholesale changes by any means. And and, and given the situation and every, all the adversity that's going to hit every program, basically, you need every little bit of help you can get. And Kentucky roster-wise and coaching staff-wise seems to be uh, as, as well-placed in that group as anybody. John, the question we've kind of been asking about Kentucky football this offseason is, giving a projection on which player you think can be the next, you know, first round or early round draft pick now that it seems like Kentucky is able to produce that year in and year out. Do you have a guy off, off the top of your mind? Yeah, I think there are two that I look at. Um, Boogie Watson jumps to mind immediately just because, you know, the people you trust and the coaching staff uh, continue to kind of throw him in that conversation with Josh Allen in terms of the jump that Josh made from junior year to senior year. Uh, it's hard for me to predict that from anybody. I think it's a little unfair, but they know these guys way better than I do. They they project them from day one. They they look at them every day, see them in practice, and they keep saying that. So to me, that means that it, it, it's definitely a possibility that he can make that big jump and be in that first round conversation in a year. And then the other guy uh, is Quinn Bohanna, who is you know for two or three years you've heard behind the scenes that when NFL scouts came to practice and were looking at the Benny, Benny Snells and Josh Allen's and Monty Johnson and Wynn Bowden. They would see that big old nose guard who was a freshman, a sophomore, or junior at the time and say, when that guy gets here, he's going to be a, a real player. And if, if he can use this summer, can make the most out of the, the conditioning they're going to get, change his body a little bit, I think he's, he's a guy with a big early-round potential too. We're talking to John Hale, the beat writer for the Courier-Journal, covers the Wildcats and is a veteran to the U.K. beat. And, you know, Billy and Aaron and I have talked with a lot of guests about uh, a lot of players' offense and defense. And one player we haven't really talked enough about, in my opinion, is Max Duffy. And he comes back. He was uh, arguably the best punter in America last year. He says the kid at A&M was better, but he said our schemes under Dean Hood at Kentucky allowed me to kick the way that I was able to kick. Well, now Dean Hood is gone, and they're going to kind of coach special teams a little differently, John. But they do have Duffy back. How much of a concern do you think it might be, uh, or do you think they'll just keep right on doing what they've been doing? Because that would seem to be the wise thing to do. Yeah, I think they're going to going to stay pretty similar there. I, I would be real surprised if they changed up much schematically in that area. I think the important part, especially for the kickers and, and Max Duffy and and their you know place kickers, if they could figure that out, is that they have Louis Matsakis, their special teams quality control coach, who's been on the staff for three or four years now at this point. Uh, that makes a huge difference. He's a former college punter, so he he knows the specifics of coaching, punting, and kicking, which is something that you, the most most college staffs don't have. I mean, even the special right. teams coordinators are not kicking specialists. The, most of those kickers have you know their independent coaches, and so that that's a huge boost for them. Versus what was it? Probably four years ago now, where Stoops yep. uh, he experimented with this, not having a special teams coordinator one season, yeah. and it was kind of a disaster, and everybody you know really took issue with that. Well, Batsakis was not on the staff then, so I think that helps a lot in terms of continuity. But even in the other areas, 
uh, in the, the return game, uh, the kickoffs, all those things, they're going to keep a lot of what Dean Hood did here. And some of these assistants who are taking over those those facets were already working with those groups the last two or three years with, with Coach Hood kind of just running the show as overseeing it all. So I, I would be surprised if they have any more issues there. They're going to have personnel questions. Obviously, they have a big question at kicker after the inconsistency there last year. But I think uh, I expect Max Duffy. I'd be really shocked if he's not one of the best punters in the country again this year. You hinted right at my next question, John, which was I think the issue that none of us have talked about and maybe the biggest issue on this upcoming roster is kicker and how unreliable it's been since Austin McGinnis left. Do you have any clue on who you trust more between Ruffalo and Four? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 my gut is that they give Ruffalo the job early on just because he ended in that spot last year, and, and you see what he does there. But Chance Poor is the one, obviously, with the bigger leg and, and probably the more talent, and he's on scholarship. And so I'm sure that they're going to give him every opportunity to prove he can do the job, but he's just been so inconsistent when he's been in games that Mark Stoops is a guy on special teams especially. He wants the safest option out there, and until – Chance Poor earns that trust back. I think they're going to probably go with the steadier guy who might not be as talented, but it's a huge question mark. I mean, Matt Ruffalo missed a couple extra points last year too. That's that could be a big deal. I mean, we they played so many close games the last three years uh, that kicking is going to be a huge, huge part of this team this year, and, and they need to figure that out. I think that people are finally paying more attention uh, as a whole to special teams when it comes to not just kickers but the return game. And they're, they're learning that there are more ways to return a kick or return a punt and that obviously you don't just send them out there. And I think they learned that, to your point, John, four years ago. You know, a group effort on special teams is all well and good. Everybody pitches in. Now, I, I'm one of those, it sounds like you are too, one of those people who, who thinks that, you know, and certainly I'm no expert, but I know what my eyes have seen. And having the one voice and then everybody else, you know, pitching in, I, I think has got to be the way to do it. But you bring up a good point. You've got a guy on staff who has been there long enough to, to pick up where they left off. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest deal. I mean, if if I if they go out in the fall and change a bunch of stuff from what Dean Hood was doing, then I think you're probably going to run into the similar questions as the last time they did this no special teams coordinator thing. Assuming that they basically just keep the same schemes they've been running the last two or three years, I don't think it's a huge deal not to have the one person anymore because they're so conditioned to that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the more time that goes on since Dean had left and the more the game changes, the more they're going to have to adapt and, and maybe they'll need to reassess then. But I think for this one year, assuming you're just running what you did last year, you're probably going to be okay. Uh, getting back to the predictions for Kentucky, we have been looking at the different listings and rankings and, and, you know, people buying into Missouri, buying into South Carolina and Tennessee, and that's fine. Uh, and as it comes to Kentucky, you, you got to beat Tennessee semi-consistently before people will, you know, will stop automatically picking Tennessee ahead of Kentucky. But the one team that seems to be coming back from wherever it went was Florida. Florida backed up to the pack for whatever reason. And now it looks like because of recruiting and because of the way Florida finished up last year, that the Gators are getting back to where they were. And I've seen at least one survey, John, that picked Florida to win the East. How good do you think Florida's going to be? Because I firmly believe Kentucky has been as good or better over the last three or four years than Florida each time Kentucky played the Gators. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. But I also 
and fully on board with the idea that they're going to get really good really fast. I mean, I think we had these conversations two years ago when Dan Mullen took that job yeah. that there was probably a window for Kentucky where you had to end the streak and do it now because he was going to get that program. Just look at what he did at Mississippi State with the talent you can recruit to Starkville. If you can recruit and, and build an offense that way in, in Florida, you, you've got something really working there. And, and obviously Kentucky did end the streak, and now they've they've gotten that albatross off their head. And they arguably could have won last year too, yep. but you look at how that game played out after they made the quarterback switch. They were forced into it by the injury, obviously. Uh, it, it, they just got so much better when they when they found their quarterback and, and got just better and better as the season went along. I expect them to be right there with Georgia to compete for the East. I don't know how you pick another team other than Georgia until they you know get knocked off the yeah. top right now. Uh, but I think it's definitely if you're if you're breaking it down, uh, it, Georgia and Florida are in kind of a tier of their own. And then in that second tier, I could see any any way of finishing between Kentucky and Tennessee and, and some of these other programs. I'm I'm in the same way that, you, that I'm not going to pick Kentucky ahead of some of these teams they never beat. I'm not going to pick them behind South Carolina until I see them lose to them two or three years in a row. Uh, and that comes back to earth. And the same with Missouri. I think Kentucky's just passed Missouri, uh, yeah. South Carolina, and Vanderbilt especially in the league. Um, I think that's where you'd stack them up right now, but uh, I, I understand why some other people are you know, looking at those schools and saying there are real questions and how you'd rank them. I agree. John, always fun talking football with you. Thanks for your time, and I hope to see you at a practice real soon. Well, let's hope so. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. John Hale of the Courier-Journal, and we're back in just a minute. When we come back, at some point we'll tell you a little bit about a feud between – a national radio host, and a guy we've kicked around here on this show, Jim Harbaugh. That's right, one of our favorite topics of late. We're back in a minute, 630 WLAP. This is the home of the Wildcats, 630 WLAP. Welcome back to the Big Blue Insider. Glad to have you. Paul Feinbaum has the national radio show that oftentimes centers on Southeastern Conference, but a lot of talk about college football. And today... He said this, there's no getting around it for what Jim Harbaugh makes for that program. He wins the crown as the most overrated coach in the country. He said, I've believed in them a couple of times. Maybe they'll win at home. I'm not a hater. I just have been abused by Jim Harbaugh, believing too often that he could get it done, and he can't get it done. And he factors in the $8 million paycheck, although some uh, some people argue that that's not really an issue. It should be just about what he's accomplished. So uh, Aaron and I are more walking down this side of the street than Billy. We've argued this before, but uh, uh, if you were talking to Paul Feinbaum, Billy, and don't bring up Notre Dame's coach, uh. <laughs> but if you were talking to Feinbaum, he bring actually a couple of uh, Detroit sports writers debated this, and they brought up the fact that Ed Orgeron and Kirby Smart have accomplished more because Harbaugh's never been in the Big Ten championship game. I want to see if Orgeron can, can maintain, but – you know, I, I just have a hard time disputing what Feinbaum has said. But he calls him the most overrated coach yeah. in the country. Yeah. I just don't think that's true. He still has a 700% winning percentage. I mean, the guy may not get it done against one team. He's still had back-to-back-to-back 10-win seasons. I mean, he's worth a pretty penny, but he's also a big name when it comes to the sport. And please forgive me if I think that Paul Feinbaum has a little bit of SEC bias in his bones. Well, true, but it's, it's not like he was – you know, sizing up Harbaugh. This, these were Detroit writers talking about the SEC guys. I think Feinbaum also has in mind the paycheck 
and I do think that that's fair to include that. But, you know, we'll see. Harbaugh's getting another shot this year, so we'll find out. Stay with us. You're listening to Big Blue Insider with Dick Gabriel on News Radio 630 WLAP and WLAP.com. This song goes out to anybody who wears khakis every day to work, like Jim Harbaugh. Right, Billy? Right, man. <laughs> Hit the B square. <laughs> Actually, wearing khakis, if you're a coach, it's not that bad a move because, look, you're going to get them grass-stained or dirty or whatever, and, you know, you know what you got to wear to work. Think of it as work, as work pants, you know. You don't want to wear them out to dinner every night. But Welcome back to the Big Blue Insider and a melancholy tip of the cap to Ken Riley, who has passed away. And if you're a longtime Bengals fan, you recognize that name because he was a Bengal for 15 seasons, defensive back, and in fact was one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. But when he got to the Bengals, evidently he had not been a cornerback. He had been a safety, but the Bengals needed him there. And all he did was pick off 65 passes and is one of, if not the best cornerback ever to play for the Bengals. Went on to Florida A&M where he was a standout player, became the head coach and the athletic director. This was a sixth-round draft pick. Back in 1969, he was a starter as a rookie, and he remained a starter through his final season, which, of course, was 1983, as I mentioned, 15 years. And he was an all-pro in his last year. So if you are a longtime Bengals fan and you remember back when the Bengals were relevant for quite a while, quite a bit, this was one of the reasons. They had a pretty good defense, and Riley was one of the best. Paul Brown actually converted him to cornerback, and he finished his career fourth in NFL history with those 65 career picks. He is now tied for fifth in the NFL. So, uh, again, Ken Riley gone at the age of 72. One other note for you, uh, Malik Monk, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but if you missed it earlier, was suspended without pay by the NBA February 26th. They never made the punishment, the reason for it, public, but he did violate terms of the uh, NBA's anti-drug program. But he has been cleared, of course, uh, if you take a look at the calendar. However, his team, the Hornets, is not going to be a part of the restart by the NBA. They're one of the six teams that will not be playing, not one of the uh, the 22-team plan to return to action. So he won't be back in the court until next year. The good news is that when he sat, when they sat him down, he had been on a pretty good run of games. And, Aaron, you might remember that, that he had uh, finally started to show some of the promise that caused the Hornets to spend that high draft pick on him. That's exactly right, and that's why it made it even more disappointing to hear what happened, uh, given that you know his first two years in the NBA were not probably what the Hornets bargained for when they took him with that 11th overall pick. But, you know, he's finally starting to turn the corner. I want to say he was nearing 10 points per game. It might have been around 8 or 9, but he's getting there. And, unfortunately, that season came to a close for him, given uh, his actions. But, uh, hey, he's, if he can stay on the right path, he's on the upward swing as a player. And that team, obviously, a couple of Kentucky guys, C.J. Washington there, too. Yeah. So, that's definitely a team here in Lexington that's followed closely. 
Kind of unfortunate that Michael Kidd Gilchrist was finally let go by the Hornets, but he landed in a great spot. He landed in Dallas, which, as you know, has a, a pretty active and uh, I think smart owner, a guy who knows what's going on in the NBA, and Mark Cuban. And, of course, he joins another former Wildcat, Willie Cauley-Stein. So uh, it's going to be fun to watch them if they can stay together in Dallas. But when the league does resume, a lot of Wildcats, former Wildcats, will be in action. But that's just the nature of U.K. basketball and the NBA right now. Coming up this Sunday on ESPN is another documentary. You had the long string of docs, uh, the 10-part series uh, concerning Michael Jordan, and then lad, this past Sunday, and of course the ratings were outstanding. This past Sunday, I don't know if you guys, the, the two millennials on the show, uh, Aaron and Billy, I don't know that you, you probably skipped the one on Bruce Lee. Am I guess, or did you, did you tune in? Uh, I did not watch I watched it. the whole thing, Dick. Did you? Attaboy. Believe it or not. Attaboy. Well, Nothing uh, else to do. being a guy who's been into martial arts for a long time, I watched it, although I will say that I didn't learn anything new for the most part. I saw a little bit of new footage, but I've, I've watched so many Bruce Lee documentaries that, for me, it didn't break any new ground. I'm sure it did for you, Billy. Uh, what I liked, having put together a few documentaries in my day, was the way it was put together, the style with which the director and editor put this thing together. It was really pretty cool. But if you didn't know that much about Bruce Lee, I mean, what, did, you, did you like what you saw? Uh, absolutely. You know, the only thing I knew about Bruce Lee was Enter the Dragon. Yeah. I had seen that movie. So uh, to know or figure out that he had died just before it came out at the young yeah. age of 32 was yep. quite a shock. But I, I'd have to echo your sentiment about how it was done. You know, they didn't show anybody that was speaking right. until the very end. That's right. So it all flowed together. It, I want to say, I don't say one is more art than the other, but it felt more like art it just felt like kind of really taking the time of deciding which shot was coming next i did like it and it, it kind of taught me a few things that i didn't even know about yeah and there were digital enhancements to the video which was cool and and things that you know they couldn't just treat it like a, a news documentary because again it's been done and done and done but i think because it was two hours long and they chose not to dive too deeply into too many subjects, they were able to cover a lot of ground, uh, you know, start to finish. So that was it was probably can be considered now the definitive work on Bruce Lee, if you're into that kind of thing. But the next project is going to be something that I, I'm going to be really curious to see what the ratings are, because, of course, the Michael Jordan ratings were off the charts, which you expect. There just hasn't been anything on TV in terms of sports that a lot of people are going to tune in and watch. Well, the Michael Jordan documentary, even people who weren't huge Michael Jordan fans, I think, probably tuned in to see what all the fuss was about, and they were not disappointed, I'm guessing. Uh, again, the Bruce Lee documentary, that is for folks who are either a little bit curious about it or, like me, have, have enjoyed uh, being involved in martial arts for a long time. But the next one is called Long Gone Summer, and this is about the home run chase of 1998. And this happened, it's amazing, 22 years ago. So you millennials were just getting started in life. But you know the story, right? I mean, Aaron, you're a baseball nut. You know the story. Yeah. Oh, no, I can't wait for this. I will be glued. This, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate story at the end of the day. I guess it's the word for it. Yeah, because they were both... Uh, tainted. 
Yeah, they were both tainted. Uh, what's interesting is there's a piece on ESPN.com by David Schoenfield, the senior writer, about how many of us, and I'm included, believe that that season saved baseball. You got to remember that the 1994 season was a strike year, and it was one of those stupid strikes where the owners and the players argued back and forth, and it was millionaires and billionaires arguing over who was going to get rich, stay rich, you're richer than we are, we ought to be as rich as you, that kind of stuff. And they lost the fans. They absolutely lost the fans. And I don't begrudge any workforce, any union, the right to go out and strike if they think that they've got a case. That's all well and good. But I firmly believe that both sides were so tone deaf that they lost sight of the fact that they were losing fans left and right. And I'll be honest with you, as much as I love baseball and used to love it even more, I, I'm, I'm not the same. After the 94 strike, I said, to hell with you people. And I kept an eye on my Cardinals, but and I watched the, the postseason a little bit, but I didn't pour over the game stories and box scores went back when they had them like I used to. And a lot of people, a lot of people agreed with me. However, the numbers show that that wasn't exactly the case, that 98 did not save baseball. It's really interesting. Attendance dropped 20% the following year, but it increased 6% the year after that, 5% in 97, but only 4% in 98, and it declined slightly in 99. And in 99, who did your Yankees play in the World Series? Now, Atlanta. Uh uh-uh. San Diego. Your, your line sounds terrible. Are you what? Are you running laps? No, I'm not running laps. I have right. a dog running on all over me. But right. 98, San Diego. 99 was Atlanta. Okay. Well, the the San Diego New York World Series record low number of viewers. Wow. So they've been struggling, but maybe because they knew it was going to happen. <laughs> Oh, they knew the Yankees were going to win. <laughs> uh, but what they do establish is the fact that the most watched regular season game in ESPN history with 10.6 million viewers, Cubs-Cardinals, September 7th, when McGuire tied Roger Maris's record with 61. ESPN and Fox both establishing regular season ratings records that year. ESPN 21% higher than any other year. Fox 20% higher than any year dating back to 1996. So obviously it helped. But I had forgotten about this, and people in my generation might remember this, that because of the way home runs were piling up the years prior, and we know this is because a lot of guys were abusing steroids, and Ken Griffey Jr. was never suspected of that and never once tested positive, even came close to testing. But uh, a lot of media people predicted that the record would be broken. McGuire was hitting a lot of home runs. Vinny Castilla was hitting a lot of home runs. Ken Griffey Jr. was as well. Sammy Sosa really wasn't an issue. Uh, And a lot of people thought Griffey would break the home run record because he had played only 140 games in 96 and still had 49. Then in 97... He had 56 home runs. I thought he was going to break the record that year. So uh, it was interesting that he was actually in the race. And at the All-Star break in 98, 
McGuire had a two-home run lead on Griffey. McGuire had 37. Griffey had 35. Sosa had 33. But Griffey started to get hurt again and tailed off a bit, and, and you all know by now that uh, it ended up being McGuire versus Sosa. So I do remember that, and I was driving somewhere near campus, and that September 7th game, or it might have been the record-breaking game, I knew I wasn't going to get home in time, and so I will give credit to my ex-wife. I pulled into her driveway, and she was a big sports fan, still is, and I knocked on her door and said, can I watch this? She said, oh, yeah, by all means. And so I watched the record-breaking home run at the home of my ex-wife. That is a great story. <laughs> <laughs> I love to hear that. So I knew I wasn't going to get home in time. So anyhow, uh, my sports question league. is, do what, Aaron? That's a sports over love. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, my question is, how do you guys think this one's going to do? You know, what, what if you could take the temperature of people in your generation, I think people in my generation – We'll watch it, but what about what about guy people in your generation? And you're both baseball fans. Yeah, yeah. You know this. It's a great question. It, it really depends on a lot of a lot of different things. And right now, I think that the way that baseball is being received is, you know, it's a greedy sport. Given that the owner, we're still. I mean, baseball should have been the first sport back. We could have probably even been playing within a few weeks here, and we're not there yet. So. I think it's going to depend on when it comes back. Can they, A, I would say, I don't know. I think the pace of play thing has been driven overboard. I think that the pace of play they've really fixed. I don't love some of the new rules with the pitching changes and all that. Right. But I think that, you know, for younger fans at least, this game now is more enjoyable because you're seeing more power than ever. I know for old school fans like you and I, Dick, uh, not we don't love seeing a home run every at bat or a strikeout the next. Right, but right. That's what excites the kids is the home run ball. So I actually think if they can get back and playing, that the game itself right now is in decent shape. Uh, I know Billy is the more innovative one though. Well, luckily, pace of play has nothing to do with this documentary, right? We're just watching the highlights. <laughs> We're just watching that's the home right. runs. So we will get the bump in viewership. I mean, there's nothing else to do, right? I, I think the, these documentaries are continuing to do well after Michael Jordan, and this is going to be, I think, the biggest one of really? the summer. Yes, I do. No kidding. Wow. You think it'll outdraw Michael Jordan? No, 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 not over Jordan. That's, that's up there. That's unprecedented. That's a 10-part yeah. series. But yeah. compared to Bruce Lee's and oh, sure, all that yeah. will follow, I think this one is going to generate the type of buzz that you started to see with the Jordan one. Huh. Interesting. Uh, well, and maybe it'll soak in some new fans. Who knows? Uh, but to Aaron's point, and, and yours too, Billy, about the long ball, uh, you know, you got to take the bitter with the better, and what has come with that, and what we're talking about is guys going to the plate, sitting back, fouling off pitches if they can, waiting on a pitch they can drive out of the ballpark. Launch angle, you're getting a lot of strikeouts, of course, but a lot of walks, so you don't get the action that you'll see in the college game, for instance, that, that Aaron and I cover quite a bit, or minor league baseball that some of you may go to when you can. So, uh, But there was nothing like that home run chase back in 1998. Uh, and, and again, and if you've seen the promos, uh, Bob Costas, who is you know probably the lead media voice when it comes to baseball, whether it's deserved or not, there is a comment, to their credit, ESPN has included a comment with him saying, 
but it came with a price. Now, I don't know about you, Aaron. I was kind of surprised to see that, but I think what that tells us is it's not going to be like the Michael Jordan documentary where the subjects of the doc sign off on everything, right? No doubt, no doubt. I don't think that it'll be – I mean, some people complained it was scripted or whatever. We're definitely not going to see that this time. Let's go to the phones before we hit a break. Wendell's up. Wendell, not a baseball fan. How are you, Wendell? You know exactly how- – you know exactly how much I hate baseball. <laughs> I quit watching right around 2000. But I will tell you this, I grew up loving baseball. I can tell you the backs of the numbers of every Topps baseball card up until about 1993. Wow. I loved baseball. What happened? Mark McGuire. Mark, I, I just up one day said, man, this sucks. And stopped watching baseball. <laughs> Mark McGuire was my favorite player, him and Will Clark. Yeah. I'm telling you, baseball baseball Hall of Fame is not complete without Mark McGuire in it. And I watched – I skipped class the night that he hit the 61st home run. Did you really? I was at EKU, skipped class, got to my apartment, watched the game, never moved, and <laughs> the home run went over to Big Mac land and – my life was complete. You know, Mark McGuire was my favorite player. And um, Sammy Sosa, I think the most home runs he hit prior to that was 35. And he had this overhead batting stance, kind of like Julio Franco, if you remember yeah. Julio. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, some, somebody changed his, his stance, and he started hitting more home runs. And then he gained about 50 pounds, about like Barry Bonds did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, McGuire was a great hitter before the steroids. Bonds was a great hitter before the steroids. Yeah. I Sosa was a decent hitter. Yeah. It really helped him out quite a bit. And whatever happened to Sammy Sosa, Sosa, I don't know, but he is just an absolute freak now. Do you remember? I don't know if you've seen him lately. If he remember when he was caught with a cork bat. I, I remember that him and was it Albert Bell, Joey Bell, yeah. also yeah. in the yeah. same season. Yeah. Um, but. Go look up Sammy Sosa now and just oh yeah, you know he 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 doesn't. I don't know if he's marching in protest these days um, because he's he's different. <laughs> he's different. <laughs> we'll check it out, Wendell. Good to hear from you. I appreciate it. All right. All right, we'll take a break. Back with more of the Big Blue Insider, 630 WLAP. This is the home of the Wildcats, 630 WLAP. Thanks again to Coach Anwar Stewart and to John Hale for joining us tonight. And by the way, speaking, we've talked a little bit about baseball coming back, and you can hear the frustration in Aaron's voice, but the latest proposal now from the owners is 76 games, players get 75% of their prorated salaries. Uh, That includes eliminating draft pick compensation for free agents for a year, blah, 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 blah. Uh, But 76 games, 75% 75% of their salaries. Aaron, I will guarantee you the players will reject it. Already done. I mean, the players are already taking the Twitter and uh, all the reports are that they're still ticked off. And probably more likely that they'd play a 48 to 50 game mini season before they would play 75 or 76 games, whatever it was. Uh, without making their full uh, paycheck. Is it money? Is that what's the defi- dividing factor here? Yeah, 100%. It's always money. 
Always money. And some the of this games goes. Are, the games are just a way as an excuse to say it's not all about the money, but oh, it's it's about the money. Yeah. The uh, Dick Ebersole is a former uh, head of NBC Sports, and he was telling somebody who was asking him about whatever, and he said the answer to all of your questions is always money. <laughs> And just keep that in mind when you're thinking about Damn stuff right. like this. That's why it's hard to relate. I know the other sports, the guys all play for big bucks, but it just seems like baseball is the worst. The, 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 the optics, as we like to say, terrible. That's it for now. For Aaron and Billy, Dick Gabriel, good night from the garage in Lexington. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.